This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Damani Felder. So he is a conservative Christian political commentator, and he and I became fast friends a few months back when we were down in Dallas for the world premiere of Uncle Tom 2. And obviously, I've had the guys from Uncle Tom 2 and Uncle Tom 1 here on this show. But he and I, you know, like I said, we became fast friends, and we had some good discussions, and it's like, okay, i got to get a guy like this on the podcast. And I say a guy like this. The interesting thing about it is if you listen to the podcast, we don't mention for a long time that he's actually a black man, which shouldn't matter. But a lot of things that we're talking about in our cultural moment are obsessing at the altar of immutable characteristics like the level of melanin in your skin. And just hearing him talk about that and talk about all these different subjects was really, really refreshing. We actually started by talking about the midterm elections. And again, guys, I'm recording this on Friday, November the 11th. So this is maybe a week and a half before it's released. And so by then, hopefully Arizona and Nevada get their crap together. And, you know, we're well into uh, what's going, you know, the, the, the runoff election there in the state of Georgia. But Overall, with this conversation, we talked about blackness in America. We talked about this victimization mindset that a lot of people get growing up for, because for a guy like Damani, he was raised in a Christian household in a military family that moved around a lot. He was homeschooled. And so he was never really given the opportunity to become, to to really get this victim mindset. And he even said himself, he almost fell for it during kind of the George Zimmerman, you know, Trayvon Martin era. He almost fell for this idea that being a black man in America basically is a death sentence and that you couldn't possibly be successful. Uh, You know, we also talked about, you know, tokenism uh, within, you know, a lot of black people that are kind of taking advantage of that inside of the Republican side of things, just overall conservatism and conservative values. I asked him about his read, you know, for him being a very devout Christian, about a lot of Christian black folks that, you know, vote for the Democratic Party and support, you know, things like that, that support pro-abortion initiatives, uh, for instance, and kind of where he thinks that comes from. We talk about defund the police and we had a really, really fun time with the what would you say to someone that said segment. So you'll have to wait till the end to get that. But guys, I really enjoyed my time with Damani Felder. So without further ado, let's get into it. Damani Felder, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Kyle, thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Man, I, I said in the intro kind of how we met at the Uncle Tom 2 premiere and all that, how we kind of became fast friends and we're going around and you're talking to a bunch of tables and all that. And I also told you off air, my intention today was do, to do what I normally do, which is to set up an intro and like, let's get to know the person and let's kind of like figure out who they are before we just jump into the hot stuff. But I want to jump into the hot stuff right from the beginning because guys, I know this is a little bit late, but we're recording this. This is 11, 11 a.m. on Friday, November the 11th. Okay, so that's kind of weird that, it, that it's happening like as I look at the clock. But as it stands right now, Damani, the the basically the electorate is in shambles because we have no idea who's going to be representing us. Okay. So uh, we have Arizona that currently does not have a governor or a U.S. senator uh, decided upon. And then the same thing's happening in Nevada. The only thing we know for sure is that Georgia is going to a runoff of the United States Senate between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. And so by the time you guys hear this, it'll either be the Republicans desperately trying to win in Georgia to get to 50-50 or they're already at 50-50 and they're trying to get one up or there's a lot kind of moving and shaking right now, but for all intents and purposes, the red tsunami didn't happen. The red wave didn't happen. It wasn't even a red trickle. It was a red whimper, as I called it. It was an incredibly disappointing night for for most conservatives and most Republicans. It looks like we're going to have a single digit, uh, you know, lead in the House, which, you know, the, the Democrats have enough power to peel off six or seven votes to get some legislation through. So I just want to tee it up to you to get your general thoughts, your, you know, 30,000 foot view thoughts on the midterm elections, and then we'll start digging down into di- some deeper topics. Yeah, the results do appear to be less than what we had hoped. And because of that, we've seen many individuals on our side of the aisle, on the right, um, who have chosen to start turning inward and pointing fingers left and right. We know that pretty much all of this legislation that we're going to be looking at for the next two years is going to sit on a razor's edge, which is why we're hoping to have more representation in the House and in the Senate. And it has been disappointing to see that there are some races that you would have thought would have been easy wins, appear to be anything but exactly that. So what I find very concerning, though, is the number of individuals who 
for one reason or another, have chosen to start trying to place blame at different individuals' feet, trying to say, this is why we didn't win, this is why we didn't win, and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm going to keep a close eye on places like Georgia, even places like Arizona as well. Uh, We've seen what happened in Pennsylvania, but I would argue this is more of a referendum of things we didn't get fixed after the 2020 election. Anyone out there knows that what went down in 2020 was not right, was not on the up and up. So to now see those same problems persist, it actually lends further credence to the notion that we have these powers that be in these liberal stronghold areas who are continuing to run the same play over and over again. And for one reason or another, the leadership on the right refuses to actually change or modify our game plan to address the plays we continue to see them running over and over again. So it is disappointing, and I'm going to be keeping my eyes on what's going on. But as it stands today, it's not the best place to be after two years. And there really should be no excuse for individuals to be supporting politicians who did everything in their power to lock them down, to subjugate them, to take their ability to work away, to ruin their small businesses, while the large corporations were allowed to thrive like never before. Uh, That, to me, is why I can't understand why individuals who are on the left even chose to go out and extend the uh, life of many individuals on the left side of the aisle who were in support of those lockdown, draconian, Orwellian, use whatever descriptor you want, policies that led us to where we are today. But I would argue as well that a little bit of onus falls on the right as well, because there did seem to be a, a, a proclivity to look at it like, oh, this is going to be a red wave. It's a sure thing. And we saw numbers that were lower as far as turnout is concerned hmm. in the general election. That's going to happen, of course, because it's not a presidential election, but it shouldn't happen. We need to challenge that being the status quo because we've learned over these past two years just how important those down ballot races can actually be to your everyday, day in, day out life. And the fact that we saw very large decreases in some areas, some parts of the country, goes to show that some people still do not take the election process as seriously as they really should. Well, and there's a whole lot to dig in there, and I appreciate your overall thoughts, and so we can kind of get down a little bit deeper. I think in general that heads need to roll with Republican leadership, certainly, because to to not get – to, to not be able to pick the low-hanging fruit in this election was just absolutely flummoxing. It should make every conservative Republican completely angry out there. And so I think that there needs to be some shakeup with the Republican leadership. But then there is a lot of blame to go around. And so like you can look at independents. They actually broke by one point for Democrats, and they were supposed to be a big wave over to Republicans. Republicans not having a cohesive message, you know, pointing at the detriments of the other side as opposed to saying, hey, this is why our side is better. Yet single women, unmarried women, uh, break heavily, like 70% for Democrats. And that's abortion. You know, people are saying abortion is not going to be a big issue. It's not going to be a big issue. The economy is too bad. But it looks like abortion was a major issue. And basically every abortion thing that was on the ballot in any state was upheld for abortion rights and things, things of that nature. But I guess we need to start from the top and we'll work our way down. The number one blame, if we're blaming it on a person that's coming out, is being blamed on Donald Trump. And so I completely understand that. And I am sensitive to that because a lot of his, because he, he endorsed a bunch of candidates in races that were never going to be competitive. So we don't need to look at those people, but in the races that were competitive, basically everybody that he got behind lost and it wasn't particularly close. And then we've seen in the few days after the election coming out and trying to rail against Ron DeSantis and today, you know, on, on Friday, November the 11th, coming out against governor Glenn Youngkin. Like, you know, it's just, it's really just kind of odd behavior, not really odd behavior for him, but it's like, is this really the guy that the Republicans should hold up as the leader for, for the next election cycle? I'm, I'm just not so sure. So what do you think about people? Cause I know you're a Trump guy. What do you think about people that are laying the, the blame almost completely at Trump's feet? Whenever there are disappointments, individuals rush to find a scapegoat, someone that it is easy to place blame at their feet and then move on and wash your hands of it and say, well, if this person had done this, if this person had done that and so on and so forth, we would have a different outcome. I wanted to touch briefly on the point you mentioned about how unmarried single women um, did break so hard for the left. (laughs) Sure, a little bit of levity and humor, I would say that they present the strongest argument for repealing the 19th Amendment that I've ever seen. But it's very unfortunate, though, that there are figures on the right um, through through this midterm election cycle. We're not ready or able or willing to try to reach out to other individuals who they might have thought 
were a foregone conclusion or a wash for the left and done their best to provide different alternative messaging to them. It's almost as if as the country has become more polarized and more standoffish from the other side, we seem to look at certain areas like, okay, California, all right, I'm just going to like forget about California. California's gone. There's still good people in California who are working hard behind the scenes to try to get different outcomes. And there still are people in California who may even be open to entertaining different arguments, depending on how you're able to message and be strategic and reach out. But because our people on the right, for one reason or another, are still focused on pointing fingers instead of looking at our own leadership, because I do want to say this as well. We did have some very high profile losses, and I'm going to put a big fat asterisk next to those losses, because we all know that those losses were driven by a lot of irregularities in many cases, driven by complete, complete and utter failures on the right, yes, but driven by a lot of questions that we have as well for what happened truly in those races. But we had over 200 wins, right? As compared to, I believe there's roughly 16 or 17 losses as of the recording of this video. So I would argue that a lot of individuals on the right are missing the forest for the trees, either deliberately or accidentally. And then because we wanted to see such a large red wave, now all we want to do is try to figure out how we can blame this on someone else. But I would say that the onus ultimately should fall on the individual because there are so many people out there who, for one reason or another, maybe chose to stay home or sit out the midterm elections because they thought this was going to be a red wave. And there's people who weren't nearly as vocal in the in the midterm elections as they were during the presidential elections. So there seems to be a disconnect as far as it relates to the work that needs to be done. Scott Pressler is an individual who actually two two months ago came out and predicted that we would not see a large red wave. And the reason that he said that probably would not happen was because he noticed that there seemed to be a lack of enthusiasm, cohesiveness and messaging on our side. There's a bunch of people, a bunch of uh, keyboard warriors in many cases who pretend that going and waging war online and tapping out fiery responses is going to be how you change people's minds. And that's not it. You have to go old school. You have to be local. You have to organize at the local level. And then you have to actually engage. You have to actually show up. You have to actually go and knock on doors. These are all things that you can do if you do want to have a different outcome. But for one reason or another, there's a lot of people out there who have not seen it necessary for them to ask or require more of themselves. And then it becomes very easy if you don't want to do more work yourself because the weekend comes and, oh, you're tired. You don't want to go out and block, walk or door knock. You want to sit back and say, oh, a red wave is inevitable. Then you can't exactly sit here and then try to cast blame at other people's feet when you know there's more you could have done yourself. So what's interesting about you bringing that up, I had this thought a couple of days ago, Damani. I was like, guys, so I always once a year at the beginning of the year, I do a how to avoid being a crappy man in 2023, 2022. And that's, I always have these things of advice that men should follow if they want to avoid being a crappy man. And one of the things that I'm going to be doing for this year is like, Hey, get involved locally, you know, get involved in local elections, know what's going on in your school board, stuff like that. And the reason is, is because we overestimate our impact that we can have on our favorite sports team's performance. And we completely underestimate the impact we can have in a local, uh, you know, city council race or something like that, because we will go all out and go to our favorite sports team. We'll go to their playoff games and we'll, we'll support them and we'll yell as loud as we can. And we'll come back horse as if, you know, you yelling is going to make the guy miss the ball or make them not get the first down or, or whatever the thing is for that. But then they won't block walk. As you said, they, they won't go and talk to people. They won't go, and stump for people in their community that can actually affect their, their daily lives. So I think that's a good message. One thing, but before we move off the midterm stuff, a lot of people are saying this, and I'm very sympathetic to this argument, that candidate quality was a massive problem this go around. Because no matter how you slice it, Mehmet Oz was a horrifically terrible candidate. Herschel Walker was and is still a horrifically terrible candidate. And the thing is, is they lost to people that are horrifically evil and terrible candidates. So John Fetterman, obviously it's, it's, you know, we all know at this point, his brain doesn't really work anymore. You know, he's going to be a rubber stamp democratic uh, ballot. If you look at the voting uh, history of Raphael Warnock, it is astonishing the things that that guy believes and has voted for. And it should be very, very ra easy races to, to, I guess, pick up. And so, I just, I don't know. I'm like pulling my hair out. Like what were Georgia Republicans thinking in the primary? What were, you know, Pennsylvania, 
uh, Republicans thinking in their primary to put those people up again to Trump people that he heavily endorsed and got behind and all that. And it's like almost like they were handpicked and they performed so poorly. So what are your thoughts on that? Because look at what happened in you know Florida. You got a Marco Rubio and you got a Ron DeSantis and you got all these other people. When you run good candidates, they tend to perform really well. Yeah, that's a very good point you bring up. And, you know, I think what it comes down to, what it really exposes is that the Republican establishment or Trump, whoever you want to blame for this, they seem to have warmed to the idea of trying to beat the left at their own game. We know that there's many different individuals who do go out to the polls, but we do know that some individuals might be more inclined to than others. I'm going to go all the way back to the primaries. When we have the primaries, that's the chance for you to put forth your best shot and then have individuals rally around that individual who's going to be the best shot. Um, in Georgia, I do truly believe deep down that what many on the right saw was an opportunity to take the identity politics card off the books. If you have Raphael Warnock, then it stands to reason, given the unfortunate cultural and political climate that we have now, it would almost be deemed in some circles as political suicide to run or put up a primary candidate for election who was not also what Raphael Warnock is, which is a black male. So, but in the in the efforts and trying to do that the way they did it, I fear what happened was they chose an individual who would have good name recognition, but who was untested in the political forum. And Herschel Walker, love him, hate him. He, he was a great athlete. And there are lots of people who may be a little bit further on in life who recall him and have nothing but positive memories of him based on what he used to do. He was a fantastic athlete. No one's ever going to say anything beyond or, or against that. Mm. But when you look at politics, it's a different ball game altogether to use a convenient pun. So putting him up, I understand why I believe that was the case was, okay, a black male for the left, a black male for the right. Take that completely, take that race card off the table. We might be able to make some gains, right? But it stands to reason that Herschel Walker may not be as articulate or polished or even have the best track record as it relates to social issues to be running in such a hotly contested seat. Moving on up to Pennsylvania with Mehmet Oz versus John Fetterman. Mehmet Oz was an individual that I believe at least at one point or another, uh, Trump may have made a mention of that being a good strategic play for suburban moms, individuals who sit at home and who used to watch his show and who were very much in line or attuned to Mehmet Oz and what he did over the years. You can make that argument until the cows come home, but just because someone sees someone on TV does not mean that they're going to run out to the polls and vote for them. Right, right. We have to understand that and draw distinctions between individuals who we deem as cultural icons or individuals that we see as politically savvy enough to possibly wrest control away from the left. So you, you bring up a lot of good points. I remember seeing people say when Georgia did so well against Tennessee in college football, like and they basically smoked him. It wasn't even a competitive game. One of the biggest games that ever happened in Athens, Georgia, um, that that was going to carry Herschel Walker across the finish line because again, he's a Georgia bulldog and kind of that whole thing. And I just, I remember thinking to myself, like, is there a knife nearby that I can just stab myself directly in the eyeball? Like, is that, but you know, people are pretty whimsy with how they, how they make voting decisions and things like that. So uh, I think you bring up some good points there, but we obviously need to talk about the thing that, you know, you talk about a lot on this podcast and that's the concept of blackness in America. So to anyone not watching this right now, this shouldn't matter to you. So if you're just listening to this, but Damani is a black man. Okay. So can, can we all just like take a deep breath that, that a man is a Republican and he also has a certain level of melanin that would make him present as, as a black guy. Here's the thing that drives me crazy. I grew up in a very, very diverse town, Damani, and I didn't realize it until I became an adult and everyone became obsessed with diversity, not diversity of ideas and opinions, but diversity of immutable characteristics. I look back at my sixth grade, you know, class picture. There were probably seven or eight white kids, five or six black kids, three or four Mexican kids, a couple of Asian kids, a couple of Indian kids. We didn't, they were just kids to us. They were just our classmates, but we live in this current cultural milieu where we are obsessed with the things that people cannot control, which is their immutable characteristics, their race, any of those types of things, disabilities and whatnot. And so for you, I'm just curious about what was it in your upbringing? Because you, you are a military kid. You, you grew up, you know, in a bunch of different places at a bunch of different times. So how does someone like you, and again, yes, I am talking about a black man. How does someone like you come out as a highly outspoken conservative? Because we've been led to, to believe, Damani, that that's not possible. 
that by, by dint of birth, you are to vote blue for your entire life and you're to love daddy government. But you and a lot of people like you buck against that. Take me through it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think what it really boils down to is the fact that my parents chose to put education and a love therewith uh, at the forefront of my of my upbringing. They chose to homeschool me for all 12 years because even back then when my parents were going to public school, they realized how much of a cesspool it had become, how much of a, a woke spirit truly there is in the education system at the public level. And they chose to homeschool us. And by homeschooling us, they were able to introduce us to new ideas. They were able to train us with public speaking and the art of being able to elucidate your thoughts as clearly and cogently as possible. And because I have that underpinning, it also made it very easy for me to understand and see the world through a lens that was not automatically prescribed to me mm-hmm. by my, as I like to call them, state-sponsored mind uh, mind owners, if you will. That's what many of these teachers are these days. Um, they are the ones who are going to ensure conformity. They're, they brook no dissent as it relates to the public school system. Any students who speak out against them are going to feel the full weight and wrath of these woke teachers that are out there. Um, because of that, and also because of the fact that my parents are in the military and we moved around quite a bit, I've moved 22 times. I've lived overseas in Greece right after 9-11 for a couple of years. And I've been able to see just how blessed you are truly to be in America and how many individuals out there do take those blessings for granted. And they always appear to think that the grass is greener elsewhere. And let me tell you, there's no better place to live than in the United States of America. And nothing is better evidence of that than the number of individuals who complain about America, who might be minorities, but never go somewhere else because deep down they know the blessing that they have, but because they have signed on to a culture of assimilation in many cases, especially in the minority community, then they feel as if that for them to have any sort of success whatsoever, they are not allowed to tow the party line, which is actually the antithesis of what Martin Luther King and many civil rights activists back in the sixties fought for, which was the ability not just to vote one way, but the ability to vote period. It seems that our generation or my generation has forgotten the sacrifices that those who came before set down so that we could simply participate in this process. And I can't help but to think that if those civil rights activists can see today how much of a a foregone conclusion, unfortunately, many minority voters are, then they would be incredibly disappointed that we are not utilizing that gift they gave us to its fullest potential. So I definitely want to get back to that point, but I do want to go back to something else since you you were homeschooled. So something I've been saying for a while on my show is I don't think it is right for parents to any longer to keep their kids in the government-run schools because that's what they are. They're not public schools. They're government schools, right? And we see examples all over the place. Even in deep red states, even in my state, you know, there's a middle school, you know, a stone's throw away from from my neighborhood that, you know, a a substitute teacher came in and wrote their non-binary pronouns on the board, announced to the class that they were non-binary and then opened it up for Q&A. This is like seventh grade English class. They should have said, hey, what page did you get to in Beowulf yesterday? Okay, let's turn to, to that page and start from there. But that is now, that's toothpaste that's out of the tube. Parents can't put that back in and you can't counteract because if you go to preschool all the way through 12th grade, that's 15,000 hours roughly that you're spending at the school of your choosing. So that's either going to be at home with you, but I tell people homeschool or vetted private Christian school. And I mean vetted private Christian school. Those are the only two options. So this is kind of you, you know, being able to speak to my audience because there are a lot of people that are in the public school system. They don't think they can do. They don't think they can do it another way. They don't think that they're equipped to be able to do homeschool. For some people, private school is just not really in the cards for them economically, financially, those types of things. But talk to me a little bit uh, more about the public school system and kind of the dangers it presents moving forward. Yeah, I completely understand people who are reticent about jumping headlong into homeschooling because it is or it can be viewed as a very daunting task, depending on your knowledge thereof. But I would also say that the public school systems themselves, and this kind of speaks to the genius nature of the entire new world order, if you will, in their perfect world and their perfect little utopia, what they see as perfect is men who are fully and thoroughly emasculated and who are frequently chastised or downtrodden by the domineering female. 
But that domineering female does not have any more of those nurturing instincts that should come naturally to her. And she has traded the beautiful gift of motherhood and actual child rearing for the allure, and I use that word very loosely, the allure of being a corporate slave, punching in, punching out five days a week. And because then she is off doing that, and because the father's off doing that, if the father is even part of the equation to begin with, then guess what? The state is able to get their hands on your kids' minds for eight hours a day, every day. So by the end of the formative years of your life, if you have a child growing up, if you are living in, in that in that reality, then what's really happened is you've spent more time with the state than you have with your own parents. And when that becomes the status quo, then of course the state is going to say, oh, well, if you don't honor the child's pronouns or so on and so forth, we're going to take the child away from the parents. Because at that point, the state has truly become the parent. So it is very important for people to take another look at homeschooling or a vetted private Christian school, because those are the areas and the times of your child's impressionable life when they have to be taught correctly, lest they be brainwashed completely. Because we know that the left preys on impressionable and, dare I say, pretty, pretty damn stupid. I'm just going to use the word pretty damn stupid people. And if they're able to brainwash your child to believe their warped reality, then they know that in many cases they are going to have a Democrat voter for life. Because there's one thing I know, it's once you become a Democrat, it's very difficult to get away from that mentality without suffering extreme consequences from those very same people who claim to be those who are the most loving and tolerant. Well, and I think mentality is the important thing to think about, because even with your answer previous to that, when you were talking about this victimhood mentality to where it's like, okay, if you grow up with a certain level of melanin in your skin, you have victim points. That's intersectionality 101. But this idea that if you are born black, that you can't own a business or that you can't get into the best schools or that you can't be successful, that you can't be a good dad, that you can't get married and, and, ha and before you have kids and all those different things. I feel like it comes down a whole lot more to culture within the black community. And I always hate saying the black community because it's a full of a bunch of individuals, but you know, just for ease of today's use, we'll say the black community, as opposed to this, this idea, this, you know, in the ether of systemic racism. And so like, I guess for you, you, you've been around a lot of people your entire life. I think you played uh, college football as well. So you've been around a lot of people that were black that, that weren't brought up the way that you were. They weren't military. They weren't moved around all the time. They didn't go outside the United States of America. You know, they weren't homeschooled, all those different things. So when did you feel like you were first exposed to this victimhood mentality? And then I guess, why didn't you go for it? Because like in a lot of ways, it seems like hey, this is pretty convenient. If anything ever goes wrong, I've always got this excuse, you know? Yeah. And you know what? I'll tell you what, I almost did fall for it. Hmm. I tell people all the time back in 2013, that was when the George Zimmerman, Trayvon Martin trial was airing all across TV. And back then myself, I was 21, barely 22. And I was watching the news and seeing the spin, not even fully being aware there was a spin taking place. And I thought that the news was being accurate with me. That was my first mistake. And I regret that very, very much. But what I noticed back then was that the concept or the prospect of always being able to point my finger and blame someone else for my own shortcomings, that sounds pretty good to someone who lacks the ability to have any sort of aspiration whatsoever. So, of course, to me, as a young person who's you know struggling through and working uh, several jobs to get through college, it makes sense for me to sit there at the time and say, oh, well, maybe I just don't have what I want to have because it's just the white person keeping me down, right? Come to find out, the more I actually did my own research, because I'll, I'll tell people, I'll be straight up with this. After the George Zimmerman verdict was read, I immediately ran over to Facebook and typed out some message about how difficult it was to be a black man in America and how unfair that verdict was. And I have kept that post up to this day. If people are want to have a little uh, fun, they can go back on my Facebook and find it. Hmm. It's still up there. And I use that as a point to point back to and realize just how quickly your mind can change. But I had a few friends there at college who chose to reach out to me and say, hey, do you know this fact? Have you read this article? Have you seen the autopsy? So on and so forth. And I'm just grateful to God that I had just enough wherewithal to say, you know, I'll, I'll listen to you. Well, and humility. It takes exactly. a lot of humility. Yeah. 
Exactly. I said, I'll listen to you and I'll see if what you say holds any weight, not thinking that it would. When I started to do my own research on that case, I realized just how much I'd been lied to by the media who I thought would have just told me the facts as they stood. And from that point moving forward, my biggest thought was, I'm so embarrassed Mm -hmm. not only was I taken for a ride by the media, but then I ran to social media and aired my ignorance to all of the individuals who were connected with me there. And I said, you know what? That's never going to happen again. Every single time that I hear something from the news, I need to verify that it's actually true or not. And that process does take a lot more time and effort, but it's much more rewarding because you do truly know the facts for what they actually are and not for what the mainstream media would lead you to believe. So with that, I feel like that's so awesome to know that there were people in your life because that takes relational equity. If you're going and attacking somebody's like deeply entrenched position, you're putting some chips in the middle of the table. And I encourage you guys to do that all the time when it's for somebody's betterment. But there is certainly a segment of the population, Damani, that they will be shown evidence to the contrary of their opinions. And all that that will cause them to do is to further entrench themselves in their current opinions. It's almost like a mind contagion. I don't quite understand that. Yes, it's a certain level of pride, but it's got to go deeper than that. I feel like it's almost spiritual in nature that someone can be shown, like, look at look at the George Floyd situation. Look, or we'll use an easier one. We'll go back to Ferguson, Missouri, right? So in that particular case, all the evidence pointed to the the officer being you know completely exonerated in the right to shoot Michael Brown and like we don't need to go through the evidence I think people have seen it at this point but there are people that still say hands up don't shoot and they will still go up in front of you know thousands of people at a political rally and say just like Michael Brown was murdered in cold blood on the streets of Ferguson Missouri and everyone just goes uh-huh uh-huh yeah yeah that's exactly what happened but we know better. So what what is that? Like I'm I'm literally at a loss. Like why do people look at the evidence to the contrary, the truth, and then go, nah, that's not for me? I think it's because the hard truth is less appealing than beautiful lies. People want very easy information. People don't want to do any extra research. We've almost become, especially in the West. We've gotten to the point where we are almost so fat and happy to use the expression. We're so lazy. Things have been so good for so long for so many people. No one really even knows what true adversity even is anymore. So they will sit there and they will try to find a way to justify their beliefs based on what they've been told to believe, which is why I do firmly believe that when you do have these situations that arise, like the Michael Browns or Trayvon Martins or the George Floyds, What is most important is that you do your due diligence first and then speak afterwards. As far as combating individuals who think differently than you, you have to get to them as quickly as you can, because if you don't, they are going to allow time for that seed to take root. And it's very, very difficult to rip that up and rip that away once they have bought completely onto that lie or that notion. It's not something that's completely impossible, but I would argue and and not argue, I would actually agree with you when you said it was a mind contagion, because ultimately, even if you show someone conflicting evidence or contradicting evidence to what they may believe, it's up to them to choose whether to entertain it or not. And because entertaining uh, something different is deemed as too difficult for many people, they would rather just dig their heels in and just pivot to personal attacks on you and your character, which honestly indicates to you, even if you think they're not listening to you, they are, but it's come down to a pride problem. Hmm. People have so much pride, they won't admit that they're wrong. That's why people won't refuse refuse to admit that they were taken for a ride for the last two years as it relates to the jab and everything that came along with it. People know, people are seeing uh, headlines left and right, died suddenly, died suddenly, 15-year-old has a heart attack, died suddenly, soccer player died suddenly. Okay, but because you are so prideful, you can't admit you were wrong, and because also deep down you're a little bit terrified because you actually signed on to that, so you've got skin in that game. So you have to defend what you did, otherwise you have to admit you were wrong. People would rather not admit they were wrong that entertain new information. And we're going to see them reap the benefits of that down the road. Well, and it's, it's intellectual dishonesty. It's intellectual laziness, as you pointed out. And I, I just, 
you know, at some point, and I tell people this all the time, it's pearls before swine, especially people that love to argue in the comments section on Facebook or Instagram, all that's like, when have you ever known somebody to change their sincerely, deeply held beliefs because of a comment that somebody put on Facebook? All you're doing is stressing yourself out and ma making yourself look like a fool. Um, I guess one thing that you do, and you know, this is kind of coming off the Blexit movement, and a lot of these different things. There are a lot of folks that are very uh, loud about claiming and exclaiming that black people should become conservatives. And again, I'm really uncomfortable with the language of talking people as if they're a homogenous group of individuals. Obviously, you're very, very different from people that look like you. The same is true for me. But again, we'll just use it for, for the ease of, of our discussion today. So what would I guess your pitch be? And I, and I kind of know your pitch because I've, I've followed your stuff and, and, you know, since I met you, what is your pitch to black folks out there that maybe are, are seeing some of the cracks in the foundation of the Democratic Party that aren't really down with all this woke stuff? They're not really cool with murdering babies and celebrating it and shouting it from the rooftops. What is your pitch to them to say, hey, come over, not just to the Republican side, but say, hey, come over here and be a conservative? I do my best to even not necessarily use the word conservative to start. I think that's a great way to approach an individual who might be willing to listen to you is to not even try to bring up the whole party du duality at that point. What I recommend that you do is simply ask them very basic foundational questions. One of the questions that I seem to prefer to use myself most recently is, you know, hey, Mr. Random Minority Man over here. Do you like the fact that your own demographic hasn't grown much at all in the last two decades, two, three decades? Do you like that? You know, do, do you like the fact that there, there's fewer and fewer of you, especially compared to other groups like Hispanics? Do you like that? You know, how, how does it feel when you have individual? Do you know how to access a computer or operate the Internet? Ask them those very basic, easy, open ended questions. And when they say, yeah, I can use the Internet, what are you talking about? Oh, well, wouldn't you believe it? There is actually somebody on the left side of the aisle who thinks that you don't. You know what his name is? His name is Joe Biden. And that's how you lead them into those kinds of conversations where it's not like, hey, you should become a conservative. It's like, look, what do you think? Stripping everything else away. And then you link whatever they say back to the current political goings on. And then you hopefully will have a better opportunity of changing someone's mind or at least letting them see they're being taken for a ride and being exploited um, without any, any good reason whatsoever. I think that's great because again, you're pulling people to an ideal, not necessarily a team. And so like, you know, imagine, uh, I won't go there with, with that, but that that's a great message because you're asking people, what are your core deeply held beliefs? But then you're also going to find out what their squishy beliefs are. Cause I know there are a lot of people out there that are squishy pro-choice, right? Until they see what an abortion procedure actually is. Like a lot of people think that it's just like soup in there. And then all of a sudden, right before it comes out of the vaginal canal, it turns into a human being, you know, that cries on the way out, out the door. But no, like when you show them, this is what's happening at all these different stages of gestation, like they, they're not squishy pro-abortion anymore. They're actually more pro-life. So one thing that I feel like is important to bring up with all of this, and I asked this of Samuel Say too in his first appearance on the show like a year, year and a half ago or so, is do you guys ever get worried about tokenism? About, you know, do you ever feel like, because that's something people are like, oh, you know, you're only supporting a guy like, you know, Vody Bauckham because he agrees with you and he's black. Or you only su support, you know, Tim Scott because he agrees with you and he's black. That's always kind of how it's couched. But are you worried about being taken advantage of by, you know, Republican Party establishment people or all that? It's like, oh, look, we've got, you know, a good looking, articulate black guy that's going to come out here and, and say things that we all agree with. Come on over here. We'll give you a microphone. Because to me, again, I'll listen to anybody. I'll listen to a, a purple haired polka dotted alien if they're making sense and they can help, you know, f human flourishing. But does that worry you at all that every that you're going to be potentially taken advantage of? Not me, myself personally, uh, but I have seen it happen to other individuals and I have seen the disastrous end results. Uh, I'm not sure if many people out there listening are familiar with the name Alex Stovall, but he was a, a, conser a ostensible conservative running, um, I believe it was for the House in Arizona. And it came out that behind closed doors, Alex Stovall was simply using the color of his skin. He was also a black male as more or less of an easy shot or easy path to securing a lot of Republican votes. Because there's almost a formula that you can understand and you can employ if you so choose. And if you have that sinister intent where you say, okay, I'm a black person, 
I want to get lots of money from donations. If I just learn to say and parrot the right things to the right, the right will be so desperate to get a win. They'll say, look, there's a black person who agrees with me. I'm going to support him and never do any extra due diligence beyond that. I think that's one of the biggest pitfalls and traps that people on the right can fall into. Which is why I always encourage individuals to think, to question, and to verify. You have to do those things all at the same time in some cases. You have to think, why is this person truly running? You know, why is this person? Then ask them questions, ask them difficult questions. You have to verify if their track record or their privately held beliefs actually match their publicly held beliefs. If that's the case, then you have a good person on your hands. But there have been a, a large number of black individuals who have seen the conservative movement as nothing more than a means to an end for a quick cash grab. We've seen even some of the influencer community. There's, there's influencers right now, black influencers. You know, in, in this show of respect, I'm not going to use their actual names, but you'll know what I'm talking about if you're mm. aware of the scene. And there's certain influencers who will record themselves sitting first class on airplanes with, you know, conservative T-shirts on, making eye contact with people walking by, trying to get some sort of reaction for their next big viral video. That's not constructive or helpful. You'll have conservative influencers, some of whom are minorities, who decide now that they're going to fly around the country and charge five-figure speaking fees to come speak to a group, but they can't even be troubled to go to events or to protest events like Drag Queen Story Hour happening in their own backyards. That is unacceptable. And because there's so many people out there now who just see politics as the next big forum for you to become some sort of celebrity, you're seeing more and more bad actors be mixed into the fold. So it's incumbent upon those on the right to be incredibly circumspect and to realize there are some people out there who will simply use your generosity or your benevolence as a means to living an opulent lifestyle and they will give you nothing in return, even though they say all the right things when they know that they absolutely have to. I think that's such a good point. And also it's a good reminder, all of us to just not, don't worship people. Don't worship your favorite politician, your favorite political pundit, your favorite influencer, your favorite pastor, your favorite, whatever. These are people, they will let you down. And if you build out your entire worldview, your entire theology, your entire whatever, based on what this person says and does, gosh, you'll be let down at some point. It's almost inevitable for every single person, which I guess back, back into a question that I want to ask you. Obviously, your, your faith is very important to you, your Christian faith to be more specific. But that's that's one thing that I feel that is very important and, and confusing for me as well. When you see the number of black Christians that break for the Democratic Party as well, because again, the Republican Party is not the party of Jesus, right? Like it's not one of those types of things. The Republican Party does and supports things that I think are abiblical, that are, that are not good, that aren't even moral, to be honest. But I don't see anything in the Democratic Party platform at all that can square with the truth of the gospel at all. And it, it's just crazy to me to see a lot of these prominent black Christians come out and support a Raphael Warnock or su to support any of these people these that are pro-baby murder, that are basically anti the black family, anti the culture of the black culture, which is what it was even before the civil rights movement. Whenever there was intact families and there were more black dads living and staying in the homes than there were in any other racial cohort in this country. So what are your, what are your thoughts and your read on that? Because not only as a conservative Republican man, but as a Christian man, to see when stuff like that goes on. Yeah, that's a fantastic point you bring up. I do truly believe that liberal or leftist black pastors are the biggest sellouts that we have in this country. Because liberal black pastors understand the plight of many minority individuals, their own congregation more than anyone else out there. So there is no excuse to have someone like Bishop T.D. Jakes up in North Texas pose for photo ops with Robert Francis O'Rourke. There is no excuse for that because Robert Francis O'Rourke would stand idly by and watch and be completely fine with m many individuals who are minorities continuing to kill their own unborn children. But because the left has their thumb on many of these liberal black pastors, and this goes all the way back even to you know, the civil rights movement and many of the individuals who were behind that community organizing at that level, They've seen those leftist black pastors as the easiest path to get to their impressionable or undereducated congregation in many cases. So they know that they can poison that well 
And then the congregation will continue to drink from that well indefinitely, even knowing that the Bible itself does speak against many of the liberal politicians' positions. But there's also been a rise of very woke churches as well, or churches that utilize what I like to call selective interpretation. Hmm. There's churches, uh, the church that I actually helped to protest against their Drag Queen Story Hour a few months ago here in Houston, Texas. This church, they have the gall to post certain scripture verses, but then ignore others. You either love and believe all the Bible or none of it. You can't pick and choose which verses suit your agenda. A lot of leftists even out there will say, oh, God is love and parrot that part of the Bible. But they forget the part of the Bible where it says that if you cause one of God's children to stumble, that it's better for a millstone to be tied around your neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea. That's also part of the Bible. So what you can't have your cake and eat it, too, when it comes to that. You either love the Bible, believe the Bible or follow after God or you don't. Well, we live in a culture now where we love our scriptures when they fit on a coffee cup or a T-shirt or a bumper sticker. And that's how a guy like Gavin Newsom can put up billboards in red states, uh, basically encouraging women of those red states to travel to California, go on vacation, chill out on the beach. We'll bring you into Planned Parenthood, kill your baby and send you back out to the beach without your baby. This is all good to go. And to put the love your neighbor as yourself and to quote the words of Jesus on the billboard and have no compunction or any problems with it. And the same thing with love is people talk about, isn't God about love? Aren't Christians supposed to love everybody? It's like, well, we're taught how to love people. And it's not loving, for instance. Like if I just yell at my my two-year-old son for no reason, that's not loving. But if he's running directly towards traffic where he could potentially die and I yell at him to stop, that's a loving thing to do. And so we, we basically don't have categories for love anymore. And dumb Christians, part of the reason is because they don't actually read their Bibles. And so they, they want to talk about biblical ethics and biblical justice and all these things. And it's like, show me the context of what you mean. And they can't because they just don't believe it at all. So it, in light of all of the other things that we've talked about that have been really, really fun, and I've, I've really enjoyed getting your opinion, I feel like this is almost stupid to even bring up, but defund the police, right? So you're not hearing that as much anymore because with skyrocketing violent crime rates, skyrocketing murder rates, uh, you know, fentanyl coming through the Southern border and being distributed by, you know, these different, you know, coordinated areas and matrices of, you know, different drug dealers and things like that. Like there are a lot of communities that are in shambles right now. And it's a lot of the communities that hopped on the defund the police bandwagon after uh, Ferguson, Missouri, after what happened in Minneapolis and all that, whenever George Floyd died in police custody. And we've seen this thing be very, very deleterious to a lot of communities of color. Again, I even hate, you know, couching it that way, but to a lot of those communities. What are your overall thoughts about that? Because I know you do a lot and, and you're close with a lot of people that are in law enforcement because even if they stop saying it out loud, it's causing a lot of really good men. And I'm specifically talking about the men because I think those are the only guys that people that should be out on the beat are the men. But why there are so many of those people are going to be not going into that profession because they are scared to death that they're going to make one mistake and that mistake is going to happen to a person of color and their entire family tree is going to be destroyed about it. But, you know, what do you think overall about defund the police? Defund the police was a very popular, very easy to regurgitate catchword and nothing more or catchphrase. That's all the left wants to do. They want to pump you full of the catchphrases that are going to be easy to recite or chant at their next rally or mostly peaceful protest, right? Mm -hmm. If you were to actually talk to someone who lived in those inner cities, they would tell you they need more police because they're the ones who go to sleep at night and they have to be afraid if they're going to get shot by a drive-by shooting because two local gangs are going at it. They're the ones who truly are in fear of it. But again, because of the social conditioning of many individuals in that group. You know, there's so many people out there who say, oh, you're a black Republican. That's like that's like being a chicken who supports KFC. Ha ha ha, so funny. And I'm so, my, bit, my brain is so big. Um, <laughs> what, they don't, what they don't realize is that they're doing the exact same thing themselves. Even if the left isn't saying defund the police anymore, if you are now into the, the voting booth and go vote for a leftist today, then you are a chicken voting for KFC. Because you're going to be the one who's going to pay that price sooner rather than later. The left, they don't care about improving your station in life whatsoever. They'll claim they do. Tax you all together to get more money to launder off to Ukraine. That's what they're going to do. They're going to pretend that they care about you every couple of years. And they're going to run and find somebody else to get their sink their claws into. Defunding the police is has everything to do with a continued demoralization campaign across all levels. But the only times people will take it seriously 
is if something happens to them themselves personally. If you are a person who has seen, uh, you know, someone get, you know, get shot, unfortunately, just due to wanton violence, then you're going to want to have police officers there to keep you and your loved ones safe. But if this just becomes something you see on TV or you see a fun hashtag and you can post this hashtag on Twitter and get 2000 views or 2000 likes or whatnot, then it's something that's not going to be real to you yet until it actually is. So the best thing, unfortunately, that can happen is for these crime ridden cities to just keep getting worse, which is I hate having to say that, but it only is going that's only going to change things. If you begin seeing more people who are realizing the disastrous results of the policies that they claim to hold themselves. And I think a lot of these individuals, they like the idea, as you said, they kind of like the bumper sticker. They like the slogan. They hate cops until they need one. They hate cheap dogs until they need one. They hate men until they need a strong one that's immediately available. And that's that kind of gets into the whole idea of manhood. Well, I'll go ahead and ask you about this. I wasn't intending to, but there's this movement in culture, obviously, that is attacking manhood. Any display of what would used to be called chivalrous manhood is called toxic masculinity in some ways. And I just got to tell you, I got two young sons. Those are going to be the most toxically masculine boys that you will ever meet in your entire life. And they're going to be better for it because we've got this cultural idea that a weak man is a good man. But as you know, Jordan Peterson and other people have said, it's like, if you're scared of what a strong man can do, just wait until you see what a weak man does, right? Like it's way, way more difficult uh, to get over what a weak man is capable of than what a strong man is capable of. But there's nothing virtuous, Damani, about a weak man, a, a man that's incapable of protecting somebody else, incapable of violence. Like there's nothing virtuous about that person. That is a useless person when push comes to shove because when the, you know what hits the fan, they're going to be on the phone hoping that a sheepdog gets there as quickly as possible. I, I did a, a debate with a uh, anti-gun, anti-violence Christian activist over in the UK that literally goes around the country convincing people to turn in their, you know, law-abiding citizens to turn in their firearms and have them destroyed. And he convinces them that that makes them safer. And I put him in this scenario of him and I, cause he lives in Philadelphia of all places. I was like, let's say you and I are having a cheesesteak somewhere. And then some guy comes in and he just wants to shoot up the place and I'm concealed carrying at the time. You are going to hope to God, a guy like me stops a guy like that. Because I'm your only hope because all you're capable of doing is hiding under your chair and pissing your pants. And so we live in this cultural moment where we hate manhood, we hate masculinity, we hate husbands, we hate fathers, and we don't want the family to exist. What have you seen? Because obviously we've talked about it in, you know, kind of tinted within the black culture and all that and uh, the lack of fatherhood and all that type of thing. But I think most of the problems we see in modernity, Damani, comes down to men not taking up their role and taking up the responsibility, specifically as it pertains to being fathers. But now I'm getting preachy. Hop in here. Yeah, no, you know, I, I find very interesting the intersection that's taken place from the cultural and the spiritual and the political. You can argue that as well. There, the reason the attack on men has become so pronounced in recent years is because the left, deep down, they do know that, you know, men, we are called to be like Christ, right? We, we are the head of the households and so on and so forth, right? So, of course, the left, which is anti-God, anti-religion, is going to attack any representation of what God truly intended, which is why they are all doing everything they can to browbeat men because weak men— are men who are very easy to be controlled. Weak men can be subjugated. And if a man will not take up that accountability or that cloak of responsibility or mantle and protect his family, then it makes access to, remember we talked about earlier, those single unmarried women who unfortunately, if there's no, if there's no good leadership in many cases, they will just choose to run and vote for their own destruction. Right. But if there was a strong man there who was able to actually ground that woman to make her feel like she is safe and protected and secure, and it's okay to not have to worry about going out and even working for the man and can stay home and raise the kids, this all works together. And that's mm -hmm. one of the people who understand is like, it's not this one-off issue. The left is in a coordinated attack right now against everything that it takes to survive today. And they will find a million different ways to do it. They're going to get to the women. They're going to get to the children. They're going to get through the schools. They're going to get through the messaging, the media you're taking, the music you listen to. It's all connected. And if men don't push back up against this and reclaim that beautiful, awesome power that it is to be a man, then we're going to be in a lot of trouble. Because I'll tell you this, 
weak men. I'm sure you've seen this. Uh, there's a graph I've seen several times and it says, you know, weak men create hard times. You know, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. The cycle is going to repeat itself. So we need more strong men to rise up. It's going to take people like yourself raising your two young boys correctly. People like myself, I don't have a, a wife or kids yet, but I hope to one day. But even though I don't right now, I'm fighting for them even now. Because in the future, I want them to be able to have a world to inherit that's going to be worth living in and not this desperately degenerate liberal hellhole that we currently see it trending towards. These are our kids, are arrows that we can shoot into the future to provide for the flourishing of future generations. So I absolutely love that. Dude, we've gone everywhere in this conversation, but I do want to do one more thing with you before we let you go. There's a segment of my show that I like to do with some of my uh, people that I have on. It's called, what would you say to someone that said? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, what would you say to someone that said? And then I'm just going to fill in the blank. Okay. But here's the deal. This is lightning round. So you have 30 seconds maximum to give me your response to whatever it is that I say. No, regardless of how big of a topic it is, this is me potatoes only. So are you up for it? All right, let's do it. First one here. Let's see how you do. What would you say to someone that said, I hate living in the United States of America? Get the hell out. I'll help you, Pat. <laughs> All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said, black people can't be racist? Ooh. <laughs> I would say if black people can't be racist, then why was Kanye West and why are Kyrie Irving under so much fire right now? Why is it that as soon as you attack the Jewish community, then, oh, you can be a racist now. You can't have your cake and eat it, so you can't have it both ways. And they're being attacked by people that do and think a lot of anti-Semitic things, but all of a sudden when Kanye or Kyrie do it, it's, it's all of a sudden a major problem. All right, next one here. What would you say to someone that said Donald Trump is a racist? <laughs> I feel like I would just laugh, to be honest with you. But no, I would say I, I've met the man. I've been in the same room with the same man. Donald Trump's not a racist. If you believe that, then you have fallen for the mainstream media's propaganda, and you should seek help as soon as possible. All right. Not all these do dignify a response, but I'm going to force you to give them to me on this show, at least. All right, all right. What would you say to someone that said all white people are racist? I'd say, I would say if all, if all white people are racist, then why are minorities fighting, scrapping, and clawing to come to this racist country in the numbers that they are? And if all white people are racist, doesn't that include the people that wear blue ties as well? Mm, something to think about. What no. would you say to someone that said, I don't trust cops? I would say, well, then don't call one next time you need one. And let's go back to that whole white people are racist thing for a minute. Just yeah. I have to say this one extra thing too. Um, if all white people are racist, then uh, why is Kamala Harris married to a white man? Why is AOC getting married to a white man? Why is Ilhan Omar married to a white man after being married to her brother? Sorry, this goes on and on. I could just keep going. I had to drop that in there. Well, hey, they have to fight racism on the front lines. That's why. Those are warriors that you're talking about, Damani. That's exactly why. All right, just a few more left here. What would you say to someone that said, all black Republicans are Uncle Tom's? Thank you. Hey, Uncle Tom has been reclaimed. I know not everybody's down with that, but you were in Uncle Tom 1, and then obviously we were both there at the premiere for Uncle Tom 2. It's it's good when you can reclaim things that are actually good for you. All right, a couple more here. What would you say to someone that said, I want to vote Republican, but I think they'll take advantage of me? The only way a Republican will take advantage of you is by unlocking the concepts of personal accountability, fiscal responsibility uh, in your life. Um, I don't think that that has anything to do with trying to take advantage of you, but I do believe that it comes with doing your own due diligence to understand what the party platforms truly are, where they originated from, and where they're trending in the future. All right, last question of the day here. What would you say to someone that said, the USA is a racist country? If the USA is a racist country, you don't know what racism is. Yeah, and it echoes something you said earlier. Then why are there so many people with that level of melanin desperately trying to get into this country and become citizens? I think it's because they know better than to look at the woke ideology and to just buy it hook, line, and sinker. But man, we've gone everywhere in this conversation. I've really enjoyed it, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, uh, thank you so much for having me and everybody who's listening or will listen to this. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, this, is, uh, this is how you change the country. It's worth having an exchange of ideas and then taking those moments and sharing them with others. So continue to do exactly that, and we're going to win in the end. All right, Damani Felder, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast.
Thank you for having me, brother. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my time with Damani Felder. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So the only link I've got for you today, Damani made it easy. He's got a link tree. And in this link tree, you can get to everything. You can get to his YouTube channel, to all his social media. You can contact him, go to his website. It's all right there for you. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And as always, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah.